Senator McConnell, thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. How are you? I'm fine. A few weeks ago, reporter Michael Cranish got a very important Republican on the phone, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He is, along with Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, the most powerful elected Republican in the country. But the most powerful Republican in the country is former President Trump. McConnell and Trump have butted heads for years, and especially since the election. Hello, Michael. How are you? Good, Mr. President. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. That got Michael thinking, how do these two party leaders feel about each other? And how could that affect where the party goes next? Well, if McConnell were more like the Democrats who fight much harder than, and, and stick together much better, uh, he would never have conceded the election. President Trump is pulling a lot of the strings in the party. He's talking to Senate candidates who want his endorsement. He's talked to some of them, suggesting perhaps that they declare that they want to oust McConnell as minority leader. Basically, Trump is very upset with McConnell because the former president maintains, of course, this is false, that he won the election and he wanted McConnell to do whatever he could to reverse the outcome. If he were a real leader, which he only gets, he's only a leader because he raises a lot of money and doles it out. That's his leadership. Um, If he were a leader, he would have fought for the presidency and he would have fought for those Senate seats. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Renny Svarnovsky, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 15th. Today, what two of the most powerful Republicans in the country have to say about each other. And later in the show, the end of the COP26 climate summit. Michael has covered Mitch McConnell for years, but his interest in the senator's relationship to Trump peaked recently when he read an updated version of McConnell's memoir. That book, The Long Game, first came out in 2016, but this latest version opens with something new. The newer edition had this very glowing forward written by Donald Trump, or so it said. This forward by Trump was very glowing. It said that McConnell is my you know, I couldn't ask for a better partner. He's my ace in the hole. Frankly, as soon as I read it, I had my doubts about whether Trump had actually written it, knowing Trump and having reported on him for now five or six years pretty uh, steadily. So it's just a hunch. And I asked Trump, did you write that forward? He came to me and asked me if I would do it. And, uh, and I said, sure. What do you want me to say? He said, well, do you think I could write some things down? I said, why don't you write it for me and I'll put it in, Mitch, because that's the way life works, Michael. You understand. And then I had the chance to ask McConnell, was that true? Is that what happened? Look, I I haven't spoken to President Trump since December the 15th. Um, He's commented on me from time to time, as you're well aware. Uh, I really don't have anything to add related to him. He didn't dispute it. He basically said, I have nothing to add about the former president. It's interesting how their relationship has evolved. I know that, you know, McConnell has sort of managed to neatly sidestep the issue of whether he believes that Trump should have faced consequences for his role in the January 6th insurrection when the impeachment trial was underway. You know, he said he couldn't vote to convict Trump because he was no longer in office. And I'd love to hear sort of that part of your conversation with McConnell, whether you pushed him on that? 
he had his talking point. I wanted to give him a chance, and I gave him two or three chances to be clear because he did initially say, well, if there's not enough time to have this trial before the inauguration of the next president. And then after that inauguration, he said, we can't have this trial of an ex-president. To be clear, would you have voted to convict Trump if the vote had been held while he was still president? You know, I, as I said earlier, I've, I've pretty well thoroughly addressed the areas you're talking about, first on December the 15th, mm. then on January the 6th, and then on February the 13th. And I don't have anything I can say now that would improve upon uh, what I said. I, I, maybe I missed it, but I haven't seen you answer the question I just asked you. I, I appreciate that you've made all the statements, which I've read carefully, but I haven't seen you know a yes or no answer to how, your, your logic was couldn't vote to convict because he's no longer president. Um, but I haven't seen you answer that question. So... Am I wrong? Have you answered that question directly, yes or no? I'm not sure what your question is. Say it again. The question was, to be clear, would you have voted to convict Trump if that vote had been held while he was still president? Well, as I said, I think I've covered that subject. That's really all I have to say. So it seems that he's just not keen on counterfactuals. He did not answer yes or no. And that's what he's used to walk this line. Yes, he came out and he was critical of Trump after the insurrection. He said that Trump was morally and practically responsible for what happened that day. But then he did not vote to convict. And we saw what happened to others. So Liz Cheney, the number three Republican in the House, Mm -hmm. she voted to impeach and wanted the Senate to vote to convict. And for her trouble, she was ousted from her leadership position. So McConnell has tried to walk this in-between line where He has been critical of Trump and for fomenting, in essence, being responsible, to use his words, for the insurrection, but saying we can't convict him. He is trying to find that way to walk that line um, and to survive at a time when really clearly Trump is at odds with him, but he is still the leader of his party in the Senate. That that line he's trying to walk is really interesting. And I wonder, has Trump you know, acknowledged all of the things that McConnell has done for him, right? Like, repeatedly pushing his agenda, keeping a Supreme Court seat open heading into the 2016 election. Um, Did he acknowledge any of that when you guys talked? The way Trump put it is that without me, meaning Trump, McConnell wouldn't have gotten all these judges approved and so forth. Do you agree that he played a major role in your being elected in 2016? No, I don't think that had anything to do with it. I think it's the first time I've even heard it. Really? It was not mentioned during the race. It wasn't a big factor at all. Um, uh, it was really the reverse. Uh, I got him elected when he came to me and asked me for an endorsement and to uh, do ads. Clearly, they had a relationship of mutual interest, even though they didn't always see eye to eye. But clearly, you know, it was beneficial for both of them until it wasn't. McConnell's aim is to do things for his party, to be successful, and to maintain power for the party and himself. Time and again, as I did my reporting, I found that he had moved to the right, taken new positions when he found that was what was needed Mm -hmm. to maintain the party's power uh, and his own power. And that's really what he continues to do. You know, we've talked about this relationship now, but let's look at McConnell without Trump. You've reported on him for a long time. How have you seen him change in that time pre-Trump and during and post-Trump. To date myself, I first covered Mitch McConnell back in 1990 when I was the congressional reporter for the Boston Globe. Uh So that's now 31 years ago. And at that time, I spent a lot of time covering the Clean Air Act. 
And one of the big issues in the Clean Air Act for years had failed in the Senate because coal state senators, Kentucky's one of them, he's from Kentucky, didn't want to hurt their industry. Mm-hmm. A long story short, President George H.W. Bush, a Republican, worked with Republicans in the Senate as well as the House to come up with various compromises that enabled the Clean Air Act to be passed. And I found this quote from McConnell in which she said, I had a chance to choose between the status quo and clean air, and I chose cleaner air. Fast forward now, and McConnell has been one of the primary roadblocks to passing climate change legislation. Well, I I think the big difference between most Republicans and most Democrats is the issue of how one deals with climate change. Do you encourage innovation and technology as a solution, or do you shut down parts of the economy? And I find myself aligned with most Republicans that technology and innovation, uh, we're dealing with this issue, frankly, better than the other countries in in the climate accords in Paris. So that's quite a significant change. He basically started his career as a fairly liberal to moderate Republican. He voted for Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1964 because he was so angry that Barry Goldwater had opposed the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act. And he was actually there in 1965 when President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. Can you tell me more about how his attitude toward voting rights has changed and sort of how he's justified it? The Supreme Court has, over the years, gutted some of the provisions, for example, requiring certain states to pre-clear changes in voting laws to make sure they don't violate Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Um, And For McConnell, he has been a supporter over the years. For example, in 2006, he voted to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. In 2002, he co-authored the Help America Vote Act. These are all federal measures on voting. But recently, he's opposed voting rights bills, saying this is not a, quote, federal issue, unquote. So I asked him in this interview, how do you square these two? How can you say it's not a federal issue if you've in the past supported these various voting rights measures? Look, I I think it has been since 1965 and continues to be against the law to discriminate against people on the basis of race to prevent their voting. But there's there's no evidence of it. It's easy to vote in America in virtually every state. He's saying the Voting Rights Act is still intact. We don't need measures that deal with it more. I'm not saying racism no longer exists. I'm saying that there's no evidence anywhere in America that people are being prevented from voting on the basis of race. Of course, Democrats have pushed back strongly on that. They proposed several bills, including the John Lewis bill, which would restore some of the original provisions of the Voting Rights Act, because they say that various state legislatures are enacting measures that would, in effect, make it more difficult for minorities to vote. So it's become a key matter. So far, McConnell has prevailed on this. And the reality is, unless there's a change in the filibuster rules, that so far McConnell has been able to prevail on this very important issue that could be absolutely crucial in the 2024 uh, election. Does McConnell actually have any political convictions anymore? Well, one of the themes of the story, if you talk to people who've known him for a long time, they look at how he shifted from being relatively liberal or moderate to pretty conservative today. And they look and they see that means he doesn't have certain convictions. There are plenty of 
ideologues in today's party, very rigid ideologues. He certainly shifted over time to the right. There's no question about that. His convictions, I mean, he certainly expressed them in pushing forward very conservative justices, holding open a Supreme Court seat, much to the dismay of Democrats that enabled Trump to get three Supreme Court justices and also hundreds of other lower court justices. He has pushed very hard, notwithstanding his original call for strict limits on campaign finance in fighting against campaign finance reform. That's something that it's since reversing his position, essentially, uh, he's been pretty clear on. So these are all things that have a clear line to trying to keep the party in power, stay in line with the party. When the party moved more to the right, you know, staying with that. He's not one of these individuals who have left the party. There are plenty of people who were like McConnell. They started out as relatively moderate. They found the party was moving too far to the right. They left. They retired. They got beaten in a election and so forth. So he's managed to stay and would consider himself a a survivor uh, in that sense, but while also, as he wrote in his memoir, pushing back against what he called radicals in the party while still maintaining some kind of peace with himself and and peace with the party. I was uh, criticized by the Tea Party movement for being too moderate. Um, I've been criticized by the Democrats for being too conservative. I think It's pretty safe to say that if you're a leader of one of the parties in the Senate and you're trying to get outcomes where you can find areas of agreement with the other side, the most extreme elements of your own party are not going to like it. So what's next for McConnell, especially if he doesn't have Trump's support? How much of a problem is that for him? Well, it's a really good question. We have coming up soon a decision where... Democrats have to raise the debt ceiling. McConnell helped Democrats do that temporarily a few weeks ago, has said he won't do it again. This could lead to some kind of fiscal crisis. Mm -hmm. McConnell institutionally has not liked the idea of having the government shut down or being pushed into that kind of fiscal crisis. But now he's sort of aligned himself with the Trumpists in the parties to do that. Mm -hmm. And then he will face the decision whether Republicans regain Senate control or not to run again for Republican leader. So far, he's indicated that he plans to do that. He's 79 years old, remains to be seen. He was just uh, easily reelected to a term in 2020, so he's got time. Doesn't have to face reelection himself in Kentucky. So I guess that's to be played out as other Republican senators make their decision and we see how the um, election plays out in 2022. And what about Trump? Does it, does it matter if he has McConnell's support for his political future? I asked McConnell, is there any circumstance essentially under which you would not support Trump in 2024? I think the answer is pretty simple. As the, as the Republican leader of the Senate, I think it's pretty safe to say I will support the Republican nominee for president in 2024. But no matter what, no matter what he's done, doesn't matter? As the Republican leader of the Senate, obviously, I will support the Republican nominee for president in 2024. He didn't say, I think Trump would be the best nominee for the party. Mm -hmm. He's not going to come out against Trump if he's the nominee. Now, even in the last election, it took a while for him to come around to Trump. So he's always had his his reservations. Um, But I think he made pretty clear that he would sort of be off to the sidelines and then if that's who the party nominates, he would back him. So it'd be interesting to see when history is written, if Trump does run again and he wins and whether the party has regrets over that, how McConnell will be viewed. His legacy may rest 
in great part on you know what now happens with Trump and what happens with the party as a result. Michael Kranish is a political investigative reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. After the break, what happens when climate change threatens the very existence of a country? We'll be right back. After two weeks of negotiations at the COP26 climate summit, world leaders came to an underwhelming agreement this weekend. The agreement would completely phase out fossil fuels and increase aid to the poorer countries most affected by climate change. But there's a lot that it leaves out. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, Talofa from the shores of beautiful Tuvalu Islands. The foreign minister of Tuvalu, which is a little tiny Pacific island, did a virtual presentation at the COP26 conference. He recorded a video and he did it back on his island and he was standing in front of a lectern in like a little lagoon up to his knees in salt water, wearing a suit and tie with his country's flag behind him. In Tuvalu, we are living the realities of climate change, sea level rise, as you stand watching me today at COP26. We cannot wait for speeches when the sea is rising around us all the time. Climate mobility must come to the forefront. We must take bold, alternative action today to secure tomorrow. He addressed the world in this way because he lives on a small island and it's it's one of it's like a coral atoll, it's a reef island, and it only sticks up, uh, its average height is about two meters above sea level, so about six feet or so. The island is already sinking a bit, it has both subsidence going on and sea level rise, in addition to other problems of more intense storms and droughts and all sorts of other things. So so he and and other people who live in 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 small islands nations, that's the term they use here at the climate summit, you know, are very worried that they won't be there in the future, that they will uh, be underwater. How real is the possibility that the entirety of this island or this group of islands just sinks? And, and like, how far off is that reality? I mean, Tuvalu is threatened because it's so close to sea level. It, there's not a mountain in the middle, not a big volcano in the middle of Tuvalu that you, you could build your cities on. Uh, it's, it's like a big uh, barrier island in the United States, like a big beach island. And so intense storms could wash over the island. Uh, creeping sea level rise uh, comes up each year. They have fresh water supplies that are threatened. Uh, the, their aquifers are threatened uh, by a saltwater incursion into it mm. and um, really completely subsuming the island with seawater could take hundreds or a thousand years. I mean, for, com- for it to be under, completely underwater, but it will just be threatened year in and year out, kind of like living, you know, in Miami Beach without seawalls, without stilts. It'll catch up with you sooner or later if sea level rise is inexorable and just keeps continuing on its current pace or accelerates. So then what happens if the entire country, if it becomes too unsafe to live there full time or just impossible to because you can't grow food? How many people live there? Where would they go? What would the process of evacuating look like? Right. 
Tuvalu foreign minister asked that question to the COP26. What happens if if my people cannot survive on the island anymore? Do we uh, continue to be a nation if the population isn't, isn't 12,000, if it's 6,000 or 2,000? Do we still have the rights of a country, even if we have very little or no dry land? Do we then just become like a marine entity? What happens if we all have to pick up and, and emigrate to Australia or New Zealand or the United States or some other or another island? Do we still have nationhood? So it shows the kind of existential nature of their uh, predicament. It's not like living in Miami where you can drive to Orlando and buy a house. You cannot leave Tuvalu and go someplace else. You can get the World Bank and the uh, to give you money to put your houses on stilts, but sooner or later it becomes impossible, right? Particularly if you're looking at a big uh, cyclone that's going to roll over you. So that's where they're at. Are there any answers out there as to whether they would, you know, keep their statehood? Has this ever happened before? I, uh, Rennie, I don't think this has ever ha- – I don't think this question has been uh, – has been asked and answered. This kind of climate change is unprecedented in in the era of human beings, even forgetting a modern modern times and modern international law. So I, I don't I don't I don't have an answer for that, and they don't really either. It must be so heartbreaking and infuriating to see your land sort of being taken away from you when essentially it's not your fault. It's not the fault of these low-emitting islands that they're being washed away. Yes. I I mean, the leaders of several small island nations were at COP, and the president of the Pacific island of uh, Palau spoke uh, and gave a very powerful speech. We see the scorching sun is giving us intolerable heat. The warming sea is invading us. The strong winds are blowing us every which way. Our resources are disappearing before our eyes, and our future is being robbed from us. Frankly speaking, there is no dignity to a slow and painful death. You might as well bomb our islands instead of making us suffer only to witness our slow and fateful demise. Leaders of the G20, we are drowning, and our only hope is the life ring you are holding. Prime Minister of Barbados said a very similar thing uh, at the beginning of COP, where she said that we want to be here in 100 years from now. And these small island nations are very low emitters. They have small populations. They were agricultural until recently. Some of the ones in the American Caribbean were, you know, populated by slaves brought from Africa. Um, they were, they're colonies of empires. And they are not big emitters. They did not cause this problem. They ended up on islands. And the islands, if they are low, are on the very, very front lines of climate change and rising sea levels. William Booth is the London bureau chief for The Post. The story was produced by Lena Muhammad. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad and Rena Flores. As the holiday season approaches, we're wondering, what questions do you have about gathering with family and friends this year? We're bringing back advice columnist Carolyn Hacks to answer any questions you've got about holiday etiquette. Send a voice memo with your name and questions to postreports at washpost.com, and we'll try to get it answered. And if you're not a subscriber to The Post just yet, try us out for just a dollar a week. 
You can learn more at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Renny Svernovsky. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.